Hi, this is Sarit Schwetzer, and welcome to the It Is Taught podcast, a podcast devoted to the teachings of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, as recorded in his most famous work, the Tanya. My hope for this show is to make these teachings accessible and relatable to the average person, regardless of prior Jewish education or affiliation. The episodes follow the prescribed daily study portions and are meant to serve as practical lessons in how to live your life as your true self and develop an authentic and powerful relationship with your Creator. I have personally experienced the effects the study of this work has had on me, and I'm excited to share what I can of this knowledge with you. So please join me on this journey of learning, self-growth, and connection with your source. Hi, and welcome to the It Is Top podcast. This is episode 696 for the fourth of Cheshvan in a regular year. So a very common critique given about Orthodox Judaism, often by secular Jews and things like that, uh, is that the laws that we keep were really just made up by a bunch of men. And the proof of this, they say, is that if you look in the Talmud, which is where these laws come from, for the most part, uh, we see a whole bunch of disagreements. None of the rabbis pretty much can agree with one another. There are so many um, different opinions, uh, debates. The whole thing is, in fact, filled up with debate. So the argument goes that, you know, the fact that they can't agree with one another, this is pretty much proof that, it, proof that it's not true and proof that it's man-made too. Well, a counter-argument to this, which I might propose, is that um, the arguments themselves actually do point to some kind of deeper truth. What do I mean by this? Let's take an example of, let's say you have a bunch of friends who go on vacation together to Mexico. And after getting back, you ask each one of them individually how the trip was and what it was like. You're going to get very different answers from each of them. Some of the answers which might contradict one or the other. But one thing that will most likely be in common with all of these people is that they all will agree that they went to Mexico. They'll probably also all agree that they stayed in the same hotel, you know, assuming they stayed together. Certain basic fundamental things are going to uh, to be the same in their narrative. And in fact, the fact that they're disagreeing about the details and the specifics just kind of points that they're disagreeing about something uh, that it, that does have an objective truth to it. So that's one way that we can understand, you know, these different arguments that we find in the Gemara. When the sages talk about, you know, arguing about the laws of Shabbos, for example, you're allowed to do this or you're allowed to do that, kosher, is this kosher, is that kosher? They're all working within a certain fundamental framework of Shabbos, of kashers, of some certain core fundamental truths. But it does get very muddy, right? It does, you know, if anybody's ever studied uh, Gemara or had a sense of, of Gemara, it gets very, very muddy. It gets very complicated with the arguments and the weeds. The whole thing is filled with debates and uh, arguments and, and um, disagreements and things like that. And this isn't something to be dismissed. This is this is a real truth. And this is something which we're actually going to be addressing today. And in fact, the way that the Alter Rebbe is going to address this point and ultimately resolve it and really show us how, uh, how the oral Torah, the Talmud, is really divine, just like every other aspect of the Torah, just like the written Torah, and just like as we'll see Kabbalah, is he's actually going to uh, to shoot off this discussion through being, bringing a quote from the Zohar, from a section in the Zohar known as the Re'ah Mehemna, which discusses the time of the Messianic era. 
and contrasts it with our present time of exile. And the Ram Nehemna um, connects this future messianic, messianic era which with something which is termed the tree of life. And the way that the Ram Nehemna defines the tree of life is the study of Kabbalah, the study of the mystical aspects of the Torah. So the actual Ram Nehemna, the actual Zohar itself is this tree of life. And the Ram Nehemna goes on to describe that the more people engage in the study of Kabbalah, the more connected they'll be and the more readily they'll be able to experience this future time in the Messianic era when the world will be dominated by this energy of the tree of life. And the Ram Nehemna contrasts this with our exiled state right now, the world in exile right now, where it says that, that this world is actually not dominated by the tree of life, by the Torah scholars, but it's dominated instead by what is termed the tree of good and evil. And then the Ram Nehemna goes on to describe what this tree of good and evil is. And it seems like what is being described is very much connected with the oral Torah, with the Talmud. It has to do with, uh, with what is permitted, what is forbidden, the contrast between purity and impurity. These are all subjects that are spoken about in the Talmud in the oral law, in the basic oral law, not, not the Kabbalistic mystical oral law. So from this citation from the Ram Mahemna, one might assume that indeed this study of the Talmud, the study of the oral law, is in a certain sense inferior to the study of Kabbalah, of the more mystical texts, and that in fact it is really murky and perhaps does have this like human element, which is like sort of like what the secularists claim. It, it's after all, it's good and evil. It's not good, good and evil. It has evil within it. So this citation from the Ram Nehemna, that's, that's going to constitute the first half or, or the first section of what we're going to be learning today. And then the second section is where the Altarab is going to proceed to begin giving us an answer to, re to refute this seeming argument that, that one might have about, uh, or the seeming reading that one might have of the Ram Nehemna saying that the, that the oral Torah, that the Talmud is really, um, is that we can equate it with the tree of good and evil. And he's going to show us how this isn't so. So the answer is going to actually going to go on for a, f a few days. So we're going to begin that today and we're going to continue it in the next few days. Um, but so just to give you guys a little bit of an introduction of what he's going to get into today and some of the reasons why uh, the proofs that the ultra will, br will bring for the fact that, um, that the Talmud cannot in fact be thought of as being the tree of good and evil in contrast to the Kabbalah, which we think of as the tree of life. So first of all, the Altrop is going to point out to us that um, the study of Kabbalah is a relatively recent phenomenon. For the vast majority of Jewish history, uh, the study of Kabbalah was extremely hidden. Uh, it wasn't known to, to most Jews. To, 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 uh, it, in fact, I'm not even sure if it was known to any Jews in a really explicit format. It only became revealed in much, much later in history. Yet, we find that throughout Jewish history, the Torah is referred to uh, referred to as the Eitz Hachaim, the Tree of Life. You know, if you're when you're in Shul, we we sing, you know, Eitz Chaim Hila Machazekim Ba, that uh, Torah is the Tree of Life. When when we take out the Torah, you know, from the Ark, we say Torah, we stand and we say Torah is the Tree of Life to all who who. Uh, who grab onto it. So we know that it's not just Kabbalah that's referred to as the tree of life, but Torah itself is referred to as a tree of life. And this means the entire Torah. We know that the oral Torah, the Gemara, we don't separate that from the written Torah. That is also 
the Torah. That's we, you know, that's the Torah too. So, uh, so that's proof number one that the altar is going to give us that um, that it's not correct to say that the oral Torah, that the laws of the oral Torah are the tree of good and evil. That's not true. Another proof that the altar is going to bring is that we find this um, this idea that somebody who is whose sole occupation is Torah study, like there's the example that's going to be brought of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was a very great Torah scholar, who was actually. In, in fact, the author of the Zohar, so he knew quite a bit about the Zohar um, himself, right? So there's this idea that obviously doesn't apply to the vast majority of the world, but that if somebody is on this level where their Torah study is their occupation, they should not even push off their Torah study for the sake of prayer. And we know that prayer comes from a very, very high place um, and definitely a place that's above good and evil. And so when we say, you know, that a, a Torah scholar whose occupation is Torah study shouldn't put aside their Torah learning even for the sake of prayer, um, we can only understand that by seeing that learning Torah cannot be thought of as this knowledge of good and evil, cannot have this like evil, this negative element within it. Um, because then it wouldn't make sense that we can push aside prayer, that one, not we, but that one could push aside their prayer in order to study Torah. And we know that, you know, given again, the example of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, you know, when he spent 13 years hiding in a cave and his sole occupation was Torah city, it's, it's, un, it's understood that he wasn't just studying Kabbalah because it wouldn't have taken him 13 years to study Kabbalah. He was the vast majority of his time that he was, that he was in there. He was learning Talmud. He was learning Mishnah. He was learning the, the oral law, the, you know, the actual laws of Judaism. And he, and this, at this point, he, that was considered to be his occupation and he didn't pray. It said, you know, it's a funny thing to think that he didn't pray, but uh, the Rebbe actually spoke about how these sages at this level, somebody at such a high level can actually accomplish through their Torah study what the it, the level of self-abnegation that most of us can only even hope to get to through prayer. And the last proof that the altar is going to bring today to, um, in regards to this idea that we shouldn't think of the Talmud as being uh, the tree of good and evil is that we see that um, that there's a teaching that's taught that after since the base of Magdash was destroyed, since the temple was destroyed, it's taught that Hashem only has the four Amos of Halacha, the four cubits of Halacha in which he dwells, the four cubits of Jewish law in which he dwells, meaning that God dwells in the laws of the Jewish law. So again, the which is the realm of the Talmud. So God wouldn't dwell in this tree of good and evil because the tree of good and evil again it implies muddiness murkiness um, something that is that conceals god in some way so the torah is pure the torah does not conceal god no part of the torah conceals god god forbid uh, the entirety of the torah is the torah of life the it's a um so that's what we're going to be talking about today getting into this discussion you know of how uh how we should really think about um the talmud the oral law the laws of Judaism and uh, and what that's about this is about and further on in future and future episodes in the next few days we're going to be getting into more you know if this is truly the case that the Talmud is not the tree of good and evil then what was the Ram I'm not referring to why did it seem to call the um, the oral law the tree of good and evil uh, before we get into the text one thing that I want to point out that I think is really interesting this was pointed out by Rabbi Paul Thiel that's where I heard it from actually maybe others have pointed it out as well that in the citation from the Ram Ahemna, then the way that the you know, the, the reference to the tree of life, then we have the, the reference to the other tree, the way that it's constantly referred to is the tree of good and evil. 
which is interesting because when we look at the original story of creation, you know, we're, we're most familiar with these trees and the way that they're referenced. Those of you that know that story, you know, Adam and Eve, they were in Adam and Chava, they were in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, and there were two trees. Uh, there was the tree of life. And then there was another tree, and it wasn't actually referred to as the tree of good and evil. It was referred to as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, with a shorthand for tree of knowledge, right? It wasn't tree of good and evil. It was tree of knowledge of good and evil. And interestingly, and um, definitely, you know, on purpose here, the Ram Hamna leaves out that word knowledge. It's it's just the reference to this other tree is as the tree of good and evil. And kind of as a spoiler alert of what's to come in the coming episodes, uh, if the reference would have been to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then there might be room for us to say that, yes, this is a reference definitely to the oral law, to the Talmud. And that would make a lot more sense. Um, but calling the oral law, the Talmud, the tree of good and evil, and just keeping it that way and saying that's literally what it is, that is problematic. And that's that's not correct, is what the Alter Rebbe is going to teach us today. So with all of that being said, let's get into the text and see how the Alter Rebbe explains all of this. Uh, for context, we're beginning a new epistle today. It's Epistle 26 of Igeris HaKodesh. So here we go. And so the Alter Rebbe begins the section by bringing a teaching from the Ram Nehemna, which again is, uh, is, a, is a part of the Zohar, a section of the Zohar. Uh, so this teaching of the Ram Nehemna is on Parshas Naso. So, so the Ram Nehemna, I believe, is like divided up into the different Parshas of the Torah and has different explanations, deeper explanations of the Parshas of the Torah, Kabbalistic explanations. So here, this section of the Ram Nehemna is specifically discussing the Parsha of Naso. Uh, and it's found in the third part of the Zohar on page 124b. And so to begin the commentary there on Parshas Naso, the Ram Nehemna actually cites a verse from Daniel, from the prophet Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3, which says, and the wise shall shine like the radiance of the firmament. So this is referring to a time in the future era. Okay, so basically we're going to be talking about the future era and what is this radiance that's going to shine in the future era. So, the Ram Mehemna, uh, in this citation, says, with this work of yours, which is the book of the Zohar, so this, this uh, a reference to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, that's his book, he, he wrote the book of the Zohar, from the radiance of Ima Ila'a, which is Tshuva, so from the radiance of Supernal Mother, which is Tshuva, with those who studied this work, no trial is needed. Okay, so just a little bit of background to explain this. So basically, so there are different aspects of the Torah, right? There's the written Torah, there's the oral Torah, like the Gemara and stuff like that. And then there's Kabbalah. That's like the deeper aspects of the Torah. So in Kabbalistic understanding, then these different parts of the Torah come from, have different spiritual sources to them. So the written Torah, like the actual scripture that we think of as scripture, that comes from the the space of Zer Anpin, which uh, if you've been following along the podcast, that is the six emotive attributes that, as they are found in the world of Atsilas. That's the source of the written Torah. The oral Torah, by contrast, which is like the Gemara, the Mishnah, things like that, come from what's known as Nukva, or in other words, a synonym for that is Malchus of Atsilas, the lowest aspect of Atsilas. So that's that's where the oral Torah come from, comes from. Okay, now what about Kabbalah? What about like the deeper aspects of the Torah? This comes from 
what's known as Ima Ila'a, which is supernal mother, which is Bina of Attilus. And that's the realm of Chuva. So this could be a whole discussion of its own right, but just to kind of uh, say a little something about that, that basically Chuva, repentance, we've spoken about this in previous parts of the Tanya, the really, really deep idea that basically Chuva comes from a higher place than Torah than uh, than Torah and mitzvahs. So Torah and mitzvahs is this realm of Zeranpin and of Nukva, this the written Torah and the oral Torah and all of that. But Shuva comes from a higher place. Shuva is even higher than these things. The power of repentance allows a person to kind of like attach to God, attach to their source in a way that transcends even Torah and mitzvahs, which is why it can attach a person to to God in spite of, or in fact, according to Hasidus, kind of because of, due to a person actually transgressing um, Torah and mitzvahs to a certain extent, because it's specifically, how do you do tshuva? You do tshuva over, over something that you did wrong. So if you do something wrong, you know, you shouldn't, not that you should go out looking to do something wrong, but through doing something wrong, if you then do tshuva on that thing that you did wrong, you can actually attach to God in a way that's higher than Torah and mitzvahs. It's a really amazing idea. So here, so what, going back to our text, what the Ram Mahamna is basically saying here is that this book of the Zohar comes from the radiance of Imaila, from the supernal mother, which is the aspect of tshuva. And so those who study this work, when he says no trial is needed, what that means is it's going to, through studying this work, it's actually going to tap a person into Mashiach times into this higher place. Why? Because, continues the Ram Nehemna, eventually the Jewish people will taste of the tree of life, which is the book of the Zohar. So now we have another term for the Zohar. It's It stems from Ima Ila, from supernal mother, but it's also what it's actually called is it's called the, the tree of life. And they will go out of exile with it in mercy. And for them shall be fulfilled the verse, and this is a verse from Devarim, chapter 32, verse 12. I'll read it in Hebrew. God alone will lead them, and there is no strange God with him. So basically, it's like a kind of like a, a, a get out of jail free card to get to the Mashiach times, to get there faster and to get there in a more direct way, is to study the Zohar, to study these teachings. And this is referred to as the tree of life. Okay, so now we have a pretty clear understanding of what is what is meant by the tree of life in this context. Now the, the Ram Ahemna goes on and he says, okay, now what about the tree of knowledge of good and evil? So the tree of knowledge of good and evil is this is like when we talk about the prohibition and permission, impurity, impurity. Um, that's that's what it's a reference to. So uh, so else so when we go further on in this section, the Altrap is going to ex examine all of this, and he's going to explain how people sometimes have this like false understanding that the tree of of life is Kabbalah, and then the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the rest of the Torah. That's like the simplistic, more like maybe simplistic isn't the right word, but that's like the more grounded t type of the Torah, the Gemara, the Mishnah, all of those details, those, those kind of like, like uh, the revealed Torah, we call it. That's, that's what people think of as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But in fact, the ultra is going to explain that no, all of it is the tree of life. Torah in general is called the tree of life. The only difference is that the tree of life is, yes, it's the entire Torah, but once you start getting into the nitty gritty of like the prohibitions, permissions, impurity, purity, all that stuff, that's the realm of, that's what we refer to as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because it's like sorting through what's good and what's evil and all of that. So here, 
the Ram Nehemiah continues and he says that in this messianic times, then this tree of knowledge of good and evil will no longer dominate Israel for their sustenance will derive only from the side of the tree of life, where there is no problematic query, which emanates from the side of evil and no controversy, which emanates from the side of impurity. So what it's saying here basically is that in the future times, in the times of the of Mashiach, there's not going to be this struggle anymore between good and bad and and purity and impurity and all of that. As it is written, says the Ram Mahamna, and citing here from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2, and the spirit of impurity I shall remove from the earth. So thus, what is this going to translate into? What will this look like? It, this, it will be that the Torah scholars will not be sustained by the illiterate people, but from the side of the good, who eat that which is pure, kosher, and permitted. So um, nor will, so meaning to say that like nowadays, like I mentioned in the introduction, nowadays Torah scholars, they get their sustenance from business people, right? Like it, it, there's lots of people have these arrangements where it's like some people go to, uh, like these business people give lots of sukkah to Torah scholars so that they can learn and they don't have to worry about money. But right now we live in a physical reality. We have to worry about money. Like think about like uh, shluchim that go out and have Chabad houses. How much of their time do they have to spend on fundraising? That's like most of the job of a shliach is fundraising or maybe creating a side business or something like that. Like a lot of energy has to go into worldly affairs. But in the future, this is not what's going to happen. And they won't need to be sustained by illiterate people, says the Rabbi Nehemma, um, but rather from the side of good. And not only that, they won't be sustained by what is known as the Arab Rav. So the Arab Rav is translated to mean the mixed multitude. These are these were the people who left uh, Egypt and they weren't really Jewish. And so I'm not really sure, honestly, like who uh, the Rabbi Mahomna is, is referring to here, but somehow there's a reference to this mixed multitude, like, like kind of like, I guess what is coming to mind for me is that the Torah scholars are receiving their sustenance in a way that's not entirely straightforward. Um, these people who, you know, from people who eat that which is impure, richly unfit and prohibited. So, you know, sometimes Torah scholars have to get their money from people who aren't necessarily the best of people, or like, even if they're not like bad people, but like somehow you know, not, not, it's not an ideal situation, basically. And so now the Ram Nehemiah continues and he says, what, but so right now, while the tree of good and evil dominates the world, which is the situation we're in right now, these sages who are likened to the Shabbos and the festivals have nothing except what is given to them by those who are called the unsanctified ones in, qu in quotation marks. So Right. So that's how it is. This is the reality that we live in right now is that Torah scholars, very holy people, they get their sustenance from people who are not so holy and from you, the, this is how they are able to live. Just like the Shabbos day, which has only what has been prepared for it on a weekday. So just like I mentioned in the introduction, how do you have nice Shabbos food to eat and, you know, a beautiful table and how are you able to afford these things? It's because of the work that you do during the week, right? You need the weekdays in order to do that. However, that's only right now where the tree of knowledge of good and evil dominates but in the future when the tree of life will dominate the tree of good and evil will be suppressed and the illiterate people will only have what the torah scholars give them so everything's going to be re reversed it's not going to be this topsy-turvy world anymore it's going to flip in the opposite direction and then these illiterate people will have it's the torah scholars that's that are that will nourish them and they will be subjugated to them as if they did not exist in this world 
Accordingly, the prohibited and the permitted, the impure and the pure will not be removed from the illiterate people. As regards to them, there will be no difference between the era of exile and the days of Mashiach, except for the Jewish people's release from servitude to the nations. Okay, so that's interesting. So basically what the Rebbe Nehemna is saying here is that in the future to come, those people who are not, who didn't, don't prepare for it properly, who are just kind of just still stuck in the mud, so to speak, they're actually not going to experience this like great difference in consciousness. The only thing that's going to happen, and they're still going to be stuck in this like struggling between good and bad. But the only difference to them is that the, the Jewish people will will uh, be released from servitude so like there won't be the same dependency anymore so like maybe you know thinking about it this is just my own thought is that right now we know that the state of israel is very much dependent on the nations you know on on money from america and stuff like that so in the future maybe this won't be the case you know hopefully it won't be the case and we'll be self-dependent in that way the jewish people will not be subservient to the nations in that way however for those people who are still kind of stuck in the mud who haven't achieved this like they haven't tapped into this tree of life they won't be able to really overcome the the struggle between good and evil and that's indeed how this section concludes where it says for they will not have tasted of the tree of life and will require the mishnayos which set out the laws of prohibition and permission impurity and purity and this is the end of the quotation from Ramahamna concludes the ultra robust. So, yeah, so basically it's like this gives a whole new insight into Torah study and what Torah study is all about is that when people, if you ever look at, you know, people or if you've ever experienced it yourself, learning Gemara and guys learning Chavrusa and Gemara and it gets very argumentative and this this person says this and that person says that and this opinion says that what all of that is all of this back and forth is on a spiritual level it's this sorting through of good and evil it's a sorting process that's what's happening and so in the future to come this basically what the ram and is teaching us is that this sorting through process is going to be relevant for those people who don't prepare themselves properly for it by learning kabbalah by learning these teachings but if a person does they can actually transcend it and they can actually tap into this this um this reality in the future which will manifest in the sense that the Torah scholars will actually be nourishing uh, the business people and you know the impure people and, and things like that and not the other way around and by extension it seems like he doesn't say this explicitly but it sounds like it would be that Shabbos would actually nourish the rest of the weekdays as well so as mentioned that's the end of the quote from the citation from the Ramahamna. now the altar was going to go on and elaborate on this and kind of uh, get deeper into this idea of what we mean when we say the tree of good and evil and uh how it's not so simple that that that's what nikla that's what the revealed aspect of torah the oral law is um because as we mentioned in the introduction you know that it's, there's a lot of issues with calling the any part of the Torah uh, good and evil, like implying that there's something evil in Torah. Let's see how the Altarabah explains this. So the Altarabah says that, at first glance, looking at this citation from the Ram Nehemna superficially, meaning for those people who are lacking in knowledge, they might think that this study of the laws of what it is that's forbidden, what's permissible, and the whole thing about like impurity and all of that stuff comes from the tree of good and evil. However, this is 
very surprising in and of itself. And it actually contradicts the plain meaning, like somebody who would come to this kind of um, conclusion that uh, studying the oral law and studying these like different laws of what's allowed, what's not allowed and that kind of thing. It's coming from a place, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He's the ultra rabbi says this actually contradicts the simple writings and the teachings of our sages that the whole entire Torah, as it is revealed to us and to our children is called the Itzhaim La Machazikimba, the tree of life for those who hold fast to it. That's actually a citation from Mishle chapter three, verse 18. And so he says, so, so first of all, that's one issue with this idea that he brings up is the fact that it can't be that uh, these discussions of these laws come from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because the whole entirety of the Torah comes from the tree of life. And not only that, but when we actually did, when when the the scholars of the Mishnah and the scholars of the Gemara wrote down these different things, the Zohar was still concealed to them. So meaning this Zohar, which we've been terming, terming the tree of life, was concealed to them. And so thus, when we talk about the tree of life, it couldn't at that time be referencing like explicitly the Kabbalah. It had to be referencing the entirety of the Torah, which included these um, these these uh, debates and the Mishnah and the Gemara. And so, uh, and even like this Kabbalah at that time was, was hidden from all of the Chachamim, except for a select few. And even then, even for those select few, it was studied in a very concealed manner. So it's not like these like select few people sat together in public and they, everybody knew like, oh, okay, those are the, the Kabbalists that are studying Kabbalah. Even the way that they studied it was, uh, was in secret. This is talked about in the Gemara in Masechet Chagiga on page 11b and 13a. And so as, uh, as the Arizal explains, so we have this tradition brought down to us through the Arizal, that specifically in the latter generations, that it became permitted, and in fact, it became a mitzvah to reveal this chokhmah. Uh, but this was not the case in the earlier generations. And in fact, we see that with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who is the author of the Zohar, uh, he, he writes in the Zohar that um, that it was not actually, he didn't give permission for people to uh, to reveal this. Just for, It was just for him and for his associates. And that's it. And so now the ultra is going to bring another challenge to this idea of, of, of thinking of the Mishnah and the Gemara as being the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because he says, if according to this, if it was really true that this uh, learning about what's permitted and what, what's forbidden and what's permitted and all of these different laws and things like that, um, were really coming from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it would not, they would not push aside, uh, it shouldn't override the mitzvah of, of prayer, which was written because why? Because, because prayer was, was, uh, was set out according to the secrets of the Zohar with different kinds of supernal unifications and things like that. So like when we pray, it's not like sometimes, you know, again, another, kind of um, challenge that a lot of people bring to prayer, to kind of institutionalized prayers, they say like, oh, I didn't make up these words. These are words that were written by the rabbis. I'd rather pray to God in my own words and that kind of thing. Yes, that's fine. You should totally pray to God in your own words, your own language. That's totally encouraged and a good thing to do. However, there is some kind of benefit to using the actual sitter and praying those actual words because those words were put together those prayers were put together by Kabbalists who uh, wrote these things down and and it's uh, there's a lot of Kabbalistic spiritual ideas in the prayers and the specific order the specific wording and all of that kind of stuff so going back to what it is that we're learning about so if that is true that prayer is more in the realm of Kabbalah more in the realm of the Zohar 
why would it be? And if Kabbalah really is from this tree of life, which is really higher than the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then in that case, then prayer should supersede Torah study, right? Because it's like, if you want to tap into like the highest of the high, you want to go straight to the Kabbalah. You don't want to be involved in good and evil and like all of that kind of stuff. Um, but yet we see that this was not the case because we see like, for example, Rabbi Shimon Baruchai and his um, colleagues, we see that, in the, as it's stated in the Gemara, this is in Masechet Shabbos, page 11a, that it talks about how, uh, like in reference to Rabbi Shimon Baruchai and his colleagues, that um, that they their whole occupation was Torah study, and that anybody whose sole occupation is Torah study, they actually don't have to interrupt their Torah study for prayer. So if I'm not mistaken, this was like a really interesting thing, is that Rabbi Shimon Baruchai, while he was stuck in a cave um, in hiding, he actually from my understanding, he actually didn't pray. He just learned Torah all day long because he was considered as somebody whose sole occupation was Torah and his Torah was so high and so lofty that it superseded prayer. So this seems to bring a, a glitch into this understanding because if we say that prayer is Kabbalah, this tree of life, and learning about the laws is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, why should learning supersede prayer so we know obviously that that must mean in other words this is what the altar is getting at is that the um that learning about these laws learning the gemara actually does come from the tree of life and as we'll learn it actually is is connected to something even higher than prayer itself and higher than kabbalah so um the altar goes on and so he's going back to talking about this idea of somebody who's who's uh, learning Torah is their sole occupation so he says that this is true even if they're occupied with civil law like even if it's like something that's like very very like nitty-gritty it's called um, Nazikin like the laws of damages um, like for example Rabbi Yehuda who's spoken about in Masechet Brachos page 20a so this Rav, Rav Yehuda, so he was like, he was very involved in the study of civil law, the study of damages. And so in order not to inter interrupt his study, he, he was so involved with this in Torah study, he would only pray once every 30 days while he was reviewing his study as it's explained in the Gemara there. So meaning to say that there's something about Torah study that's very lofty to the point that it actually supersedes prayer. And then another proof that the altar brings is he says you see also in the Jerusalem Talmud in the first chapter of Brachos we see this whole thing about uh, how Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was of the opinion that when it comes to the recitation of the Shema so it's okay to uh, interrupt the study of scripture, like the study of, of like uh, of the Chumash, the written Torah, in order to recite the Shema, but not Mishnah. So if somebody's involved in Mishnah and uh, they need to say the Shema, they should not interrupt their studies. And so this shows that that this Mishnah is superior to to uh, scripture, according to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So basically the oral law, there's something about the oral law that's superior to the written law, according to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai did not distinguish between the different orders of the Mishnah. So there's different um, different books of the Mishnah. There's the order of Zerayim, Moed, Kadashim, um, Taharos, and Nezikin. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's different orders of the Mishnah. And and the, uh, the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai didn't distinguish between these. 
And now the ultra bridge just brings like a little bracket here, a little parentheses. That's just a very technical note. Um, if it's, it's not super important to spend too much time on it, it's just kind of like a technicality, but he says that the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, in this instance of him saying that, uh, that the Mishnah supersedes the written Torah, this is, this actually contradicts uh, a different thing that he taught in the Ram Mahemna, where he said that the, where he called the Mishnah, the handmaiden, and then he called the, uh, the Kabbalah, the queen. And then he called the written Torah the king. So it seems to be like a different hierarchy there where it seems like in that case that the written Torah is the king, then the queen is the Kabbalah, and then the Mishnah is actually the lowest one, the handmaiden. Um, and so then there's another bracket that kind of maybe explains this, is that basically when we say the king, the written Torah is the king, this is the Yesod of Abba vested in the Zer Anpin. And this is explained by the Arizal. So I don't want to really take the time to kind of try to understand that too much because it's it's really just a side note just to kind of like explain a little bit of like a technicality, a possible contradiction in what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai uh, explains. But the main idea, the main takeaway is really that simple thing that we see that the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai really put so, so much importance on the Mishnah and on this, these uh, on these these debates within that had to do with problems and solutions that's that really do come like the actual getting involved in the debates does have a side of evil and a side of impurity right because we are we're talking about in the in the mishnah in the gemara there are discussions about what's allowed what's not allowed what's impure what's not pure so the subject matter really does have this level of like good and bad within it but nevertheless we see that Rabbi Shimon Bar was very much involved in this study, even when he was living in the cave. And in fact, it's taught that the the fact that he was under so much um, pain within this cave, like he was suffering in this cave, this suffering in his cave actually merited for him to be able to be so involved in the, in this uh, in this study, in this study of the oral law, in the study of the Mishnah, as it is recounted in the Gemara and. Masechet Shabbos, page 33b, that for every question posed by Rabbi Pinchas ben Ya'ir, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai came up with 24 solutions. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai told him that if not for him seeing him like that, meaning if, if not for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai being in the cave, he would not be able to come up with these solutions. So it's actually the suffering that he experienced in being trapped in this cave for so many years actually gave him the ability to be able to um, to come up with, to have this like deeper insight into the Mishnah, deeper insight into these, these, these uh, problematic queries that came up. And... Now there's another parenthesis where the altar rabbi says that in fact, we have to say that the main thing that they were involved with in studying in the cave, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his students, was with the Mishnah, was with the 600 orders that, uh, that were around during that time. So this was before Rabbi Yehuda Nasi compiled the Mishnah, wrote it down into six orders. So it was at that time, it was 600 orders of the, of the Mishnah. And that was the, the main occupation, says the Altar Rabbi, of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his students at that time. And how do we know this? Because we know that there's this idea that, uh, that during that time that he was in the cave, then he could have completed the Zohar and the Tikkunei Zohar in two or three months. Because for sure, we know that he didn't, he didn't repeat any subject Twice. So somehow there's this teaching that while Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was in that cave, he didn't repeat anything twice. He just learned something and he learned it once. So if that was the case, what did he do for the rest of the time that he was there in the cave? Um, 
from my understanding, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was in the cave for 13 years. So if that's true, so if, if he could have studied the entirety of the Zohar and the Tikkunay Zohar, which is long, you know, but like relative to the Mishnah, it's not that long. He could have completed that in two to three months. So what did he do during the rest of the time? He was involved in studying this Mishnah. And uh, not only that, and this is the conclusion to this section, is that the sages taught, and this is from Masechet Brachos, page 8a, that since the day that the base of Megdash was destroyed, um, the the Holy One, blessed be He, what does He have left? He has the four cubits of a halacha alone. So meaning to say that there's something about halacha, the Jewish law, the study of the Jewish law, that's very, very precious to God. And that is really, really very divine. And in fact, more divine in a way than anything. I'm not more divine in the sense that the other ones aren't divine, but more holy or more precious than Kabbalah, than prayer, than even the written Torah, maybe we can say. So we'll learn more about this tomorrow. And, uh, and we'll come to a little bit of a deeper understanding of it. But today was just kind of like just to open your eyes to uh, and to get you to think about these things a little bit more and to maybe have a slightly new perspective on the fact that when you look at these debates that are found in the Gemara and the Mishnah uh, and you just see it as like a bunch of rabbis arguing and it seems really like man-made and very human, that perhaps that's not the full story and perhaps there's something very, very divine about all of it um, on a much deeper level. So that's it for today and to be continued tomorrow. And I'll speak to you then. Thanks for listening to the It Is Top podcast, hosted by Sarit Switzer. This podcast is dedicated in loving memory of my maternal grandfather, Avraham Yitzchak ben Binyamin Cohen of Blessed Memory. Music by Shoshana. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please share it with others and subscribe on YouTube, Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to leave us a five-star review. To find out more about the It Is Taught project, including more information on my soon-to-be-published book, please visit our website, itistaught.com. To catch the latest from me, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Looking forward to speaking with you tomorrow, and until then, have a great day.